all over the world we know that patients suffering from ADHD use cannabis. This is something all psychiatrists know. And in the past, we all thought that this is a kind of an addiction. But I think we should look at this from the other side. And I feel that um, most of the patients use cannabis as a kind of a self-medication. And I've talked to so many patients who said to me that when using cannabis, I really can reduce my symptoms and it's more effective and better tolerated than all the gold standard treatment you can prescribe. This is the Cannabis Enigma, cutting through the smoke to have informed, serious conversations for regular people. And I'm Alana Goldberg. What do you got for us today, Alana? Got a really interesting interview with a German neurologist and psychiatrist called Dr. Kirsten Mullerval. Um, she's an expert in cannabinoid treatments for Tourette's syndrome. Um, and we spoke about a number of topics in the interview, uh, from study design to getting funding for cannabis research, and then drilled down into the conditions of her expertise, uh, which, like I said, is, is Tourette's syndrome. We spoke about ADHD. One of the interesting things that I found about this interview was how she found that a lot of ADHD patients tend to use cannabis on their own. And in the past, the medical establishment has treated them like addicts. But she said, hey, wait a minute, maybe it's helping them. Yeah, right. Exactly. And this is actually something um, that we talked about, the importance of real world evidence and anecdotal evidence um, when kind of piecing together the, the scientific take on cannabinoid treatments. The other thing that really struck me in this interview is just, I think throughout, it just demonstrated, or she spoke about, how difficult it is to conduct cannabis research. Yeah, I mean, there are a whole lot of elements that are difficult uh, when it comes to study design uh, for cannabis research. Uh, Something that came up in this interview was the issue of how do you make a placebo for a joint? Well, let's listen to the interview. And just a reminder to please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps us reach new listeners, and of course, you'll get a notification every time we have a new episode. Hi, Kirsten. Great to have you here with us today. Um, I think, uh, you know, amongst many other things, uh, would it be fair to say that you're an expert on cannabis and how it works with the brain? Yeah. Okay. So I want to start off here before we get into your work um, with an explanation. How does cannabis work on the human brain? Oh, this is this is a difficult question. I yeah. would say no one <laughs> in the in the world is able to answer this mm-hmm. question currently. But yes, indeed, it there's a complex interaction, mm-hmm. and perhaps cannabis is the substance that has the most complex interaction with the brain among all compounds we know that interact with the brain. Wow. And this makes it so specific. This makes it so interesting, but this makes it also so difficult yeah. to understand all the effects that cannabis and all the cannabinoids in cannabis have on the brain. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we don't know how to explain how cannabis uh, works on the human brain. Uh, what do we know? 
Um, so we know that cannabis um, can be helpful in um, some conditions. We know or have some, at least some, some evidence that it might be helpful in some psychiatric and some neurological diseases. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very careful because the database is still very weak. Sure. We have a lot of preclinical data that suggest a lot, but we have only a very pure clinical database, and this makes it very difficult currently to come to a final conclusion. Mm -hmm. So um, I would say we have some good data that suggest that um, cannabinoids, when we spoke about the whole group, including THC, CBD, all these different cannabinoids, mm -hmm. that cannabinoids might be effective in the treatment of Tourette's mm -hmm. and ticks. I'm very optimistic that cannabinoids are also effective in the treatment of um, ADHD. Mm -hmm. I think there are some promising data about autism spectrum disorder. Right. Then we have some data, not primarily from patients suffering from anxiety and depression, but we have some data from patients suffering from pain or spasticity in multiple sclerosis, where we see that cannabinoids improve their mood, mm -hmm. that cannabinoids improve anxiety, that cannabinoids improve sleeping, sleeping problems. Um, but we are missing studies that primarily focus on these specific um, diseases. Right. So it's more at the symptom level rather than on exactly. the conditional indication exactly. level. And then um, I think when we talk about um, treatment, then we can also speculate about things like neuroprotection or neuroreport. Mm -hmm. Because we have some preclinical evidence that cannabinoids might be neuroprotective. Mm -hmm. And with, when this is really true in humans, then we could use cannabinoids to treat patients suffering from neurodegenerative diseases. Mm -hmm. So currently, the database is weak, and we do not have good clinical data suggesting that we should use cannabinoids in the treatment of Parkinson's disease, Huntington's disease, Alzheimer's disease, and so on and so on. It has been used. The um, studies are small, Right. Some of them are open and uncontrolled. They report that there's some improvement in patients um, with respect to agitation, sleeping problems, mood, things like this. Mm -hmm. But um, the clinical work so far hasn't shown that um, cannabinoids might be neuroprotective. Right. And perhaps we start too late in the course of the disease. Mm -hmm. And this is a very interesting discussion at the moment that perhaps we have some problems to transfer the preclinical work to our patients. Mm -hmm. And perhaps we use the wrong dosage, the wrong substance, the wrong time point, and this is something we have to figure out in the future. Right. And what do we need to do, um, or, or what do you need to do um, more accurately, in order to bridge that gap? I think we have to listen to our patients. Mm. We have to listen to the basic researchers. And then we have to try to bring this together. We have to identify those conditions where we feel that we have good evidence mm -hmm. or good, uh, good hypothesis that cannabinoids might be effective. Mm -hmm. And then, and this is the most important point, we have to do 
well-powered clinical trials. Right. And then you will see whether it's effective, yes or no. Mm -hmm. But before you start this kind of clinical trials, because, it, because it's really very expensive, sure. you have to think carefully what is the best indication, what is the best substance, which mm -hmm. cannabinoid do you want to use, right. which dose you want to use, which kind of patients do you want to include, mm -hmm. at which stage of the disease milder affected, severely affected patients, treatment-resistant patients. So a lot of um, questions you have to answer before you decide to start a study. Sure. And then the main problem, and this is I'm struggling with, um, to find a sponsor who is mm. willing to give you the money because clinical trials, at least in Germany, you have to spend, let's say, 2 million, 3 million euros, depending on the sample size on yeah. the protocol but it's it's expensive yeah but it's urgently needed and when we do not do this then i fear that those people who are skeptical will in the end um in 10 years let's say ask us where are the studies you are right. talking about cannabinoids and their potential in in all these different diseases but there's nothing mm -hmm. and then we don't have any arguments. Right. Therefore, I think this is really, really important that all those people who are working in this area, and this is um, the basic researchers, the clinical researchers, the industry, um, but also the, the governments, they have to work together, they have to spend the money, and then we are able to do this kind of clinical research. You mentioned before uh, that there are certain studies on ADHD that you're uh, looking to design. Can you tell us a bit more about, uh, you know, the interest in this uh, line of treatment and why, why you want to research it? Yeah, there are two major issues Let, letting me um, think that um, cannabinoids might be an effective treatment for at least adults. Mm -hmm. So we are talking about adult patients and um, this is always the first step. And thereafter, we can talk about treatment in children. Sure. So um, I think all over the world, we know that patients suffering from ADHD use cannabis. Mm -hmm. This is something all psychiatrists know. Right. And in the past, we all thought that this is a kind of an addiction. So um, we thought this is a comorbidity. The first suggestion when someone who suffers from ADHD and who uses cannabis comes to his doctor, the doctor recommends stop using cannabis because you are addicted. But I think we should look at this from the other side. And I feel that um, most of the patients use cannabis as a kind of a self-medication. Mm -hmm. And I've talked to so many patients who really said to me that when using cannabis, I really can reduce my symptoms and it's more effective and better tolerated than all the gold standard treatment you can prescribe to me. And I have some patients who um, really started using cannabis and only therefore and after that they were able to finish school or mm. go to the university. They say, before I have an exam, I use some cannabis because then I concentrate, can concentrate much better. And the same stories we hear from our patients suffering from Tourette's because um, nearly half of the patients suffering from Tourette's have um, comorbid ADHD. Mm. And therefore, um, 
I hear these reports also from my patients suffering from Tourette's, and um, this makes me believe that um, cannabis might be effective. The database is very weak. This is, I would say, it's it's really a shame because ADHD is a common neurodevelopmental disorder. Right. And it's a shame that we as medical doctors do not hear to our patients. We want to see this aspect of addiction and we completely ignore that there are patients who can use it without being addicted. Right. And therefore, I think it's, it's really important um, and our duty to, to further look into this. And um, at least in Germany, um, the guidelines say that cannabis should not be used in patients suffering from ADHD. Mm -hmm. There's one sentence, we have a quite new guideline and there's only one sentence in it, don't use cannabis in ADHD. It's absolutely clear and this makes it currently very difficult. Although we have this cannabis law in Germany, but it still makes it very difficult to treat patients suffering from ADHD, at least when you want to have the health insurance covering the costs. Right. It's really interesting, um, this finding, because it's kind of counterintuitive um, when most people are used to a standard treatment for ADHD being Ritalin um, or Adderall, which, which in my understanding has kind of an opposite effect um, from cannabis. How do you explain that? Hmm. So um, perhaps one, one more sentence to this ADHD story because sure. I, I like this because it was the same as we started nearly 20 years ago with our research into rats. Mm -hmm. So I'm asking all my patients, and I'm still doing this today, mm -hmm. what makes your tics worse and what makes your tics less? Mm -hmm. And at that time, some, most of them were younger men. They said, okay, when I smoke a joint then I feel that my tics go down. Mm -hmm. And this was the, the, the first beginning of our research. And um, I feel this is, a, in this area with cannabis, this is a good idea to, to listen to the patients, what they report. Um, this does not mean that it's really effective. It still might be that there's a strong placebo effect. Sure. But it makes sense to further investigate this, at least in those groups of patients where we do not have other effective treatments or we, where we have, in, in case of Tourette patients, we use um, antipsychotics to treat mm -hmm. tics. So um, this is a kind of medication that is uh, associated with a lot of side effects and therefore a lot of patients do not like to use this kind of medication. Right. Um, I'm hearing you say over and over again that we need to listen to our patients um, and it kind of makes me think about the importance of real-world evidence or anecdotal evidence um, in this story. Uh, do you have some sort of methodology for putting together this, these kind of reports that you're getting from your patients together with the uh, clinical and preclinical data? Yeah, so it depends on what, what data you have. Mm -hmm. So, um, for example, in Tourette's, that does not make any sense to collect data from our patients, what they report, because we already did this. Mm. Now we need well-designed and well-powered randomized controlled trials, because this will bring us one step forward. But there are other conditions where we have absolutely no data. And there it's a good idea to start with surveys, with real-world data. But in some indications, this does not bring us forward, for example, in pain. It 
at least in my opinion, it does not make any sense to repeat it again and again and again. But um, in those indications where we already have some data, we have to go one step further and have to use the um, gold standard for, for clinical research, and these are the um, double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized trials. But in those indications where we have nothing, it definitely makes sense to start with a survey or with real-world data and then to use this to build a hypothesis on, and to think about how to design a clinical trial. Mm -hmm. But in the end, and this is what I believe because I'm a, I'm a clinical clinician um, scientist, um, in the end you always need controlled trials because otherwise you cannot um, differentiate between um, pharmacological effects and placebo effects. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I'm hearing that uh, the design of the study is, is really important um, in order to get the results that are going to be uh, reliable and something that you can work with afterwards. Um, just for any of our listeners that don't necessarily understand um, what a controlled trial uh, entails, can you kind of break that down for us? Yeah, so a controlled trial means or um, what we say, um, randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials. So this means that you use a substance, mm -hmm. in this case cannabis, and you compare the efficacy and the safety of this substance to a placebo. Mm -hmm. And double-blind means that neither the patient nor the researcher knows who receives what. Mm -hmm. And then randomized means that there's no specific order in which the placebo and the um, active drug is given to the patient. And this is, at least to our current opinion, um, more or less the gold standard for clinical trials. There's a lot of discussion about study designs, but I would say for most um, substances and for most um, conditions, this is really the gold standard. There are a lot of aspects you can modify. You can use two arms, three arms. You can include more or less patients and things like this. There is a lot of possibility you can modify. But um, this is at least currently our gold standard. And I think also in the world of cannabis, we have to accept this. And therefore, it's um, expected that we perform this kind of clinical trials and then we know whether cannabinoids are effective. Mm -hmm. And when we use an active comparator, we even will know whether cannabis is superior than other substances used in this specific indication. So I guess focusing on, on this uh, most recent trial that you're putting together, um, is this isolates or whole plant uh, preparations that you're using? So the current um, study, um, we use um, a cannabis extract. Mm -hmm. um, more specifically, we use nabiximols. And therefore, it's easy to have a placebo right. control because this is um, offered by the company. Mm -hmm. um, we decided for nabiximols because at the time when we designed this study, and this is six years ago, this illustrates how long it takes from the very first planning until the study is completed, at that time, um, Nabiximols was the only cannabis extract available in Germany. Mm -hmm. It was the only substance that was officially licensed, in, not in Tourette's, of course, but in um, spasticity in patients suffering from multiple sclerosis. Mm -hmm. This makes it a little bit easier to perform a clinical trial. Mm -hmm. And um, GW 
um, agreed to offer the substance. This, this was also very helpful. Mm -hmm. And the placebo problem is much easier because doing a trial with the cannabis flower and using a placebo is not so trivial. You really have to carefully think that this study is still blinded. Right. And um, my best idea currently is that you use um, new inhalers mm -hmm. that are um, smokeless and where patients uh, cannot smell um, the cannabis. And there, I would say, it's when, when using this kind of new inhalers, but mm -hmm. they are not on the market currently, then it would be possible to have a completely double-blind study. Otherwise, it's, at least in my opinion, nearly impossible because when you give the flowers to the patient and they have to fill it in the filling chamber of a vaporizer, they know what they are taking. So this is not really blind. This is yeah. a huge problem using cannabis flowers. Right. And, and I mean, you kept mentioning that what you're hearing from your patients was that they smoked a joint and then they felt better. Um, so I suppose, first of all, there's the, the issue of the, uh, the study design, as you mentioned. And then also, um, I guess, the delivery method itself. Do we have any data at this point to, to show which delivery method is more uh, mm -hmm. effective? Mm -hmm. So we tried to disentangle this. We did a retrospective analysis mm -hmm. and a prospective survey asking our patients which kind of cannabis and which um, mode of administration do you prefer. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not that clear because the, it was open, uncontrolled, the sample size was small. But what I can say is... When you want to treat ticks, you need THC. Right. Pure CBD is ineffective. This is absolute, absolutely clear from my perspective. Mm -hmm. And those patients who use cannabis flowers, at least in my clinic, they prefer high THC cannabis flowers. There's no single patient who uses a cannabis flower with, with let's say, 5-6%. Um, some of them combine it. But when it comes to the treatment of ticks, um, they prefer high THC cannabis flowers. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I'm open for all kinds of cannabinoids. Um, I'm open when patients want to, to use different types of medications so that they are able to compare mm -hmm. and identify what works best for them. I have a lot of patients who like to... Um, vaporized cannabis mm -hmm. but most of these patients had some experience with cannabis before right before they came into my office and then i see no reason to change this when they report okay using cannabis is helpful for me why should i then prescribe something else right most of those patients who do not smoke who never used cannabis before they prefer an oral intake mm -hmm. Um, the bioavailability is completely different. We have to keep this in mind. Sure. But um, what I see, it's, it's also effective. Pure THC is also effective. And we started our research with pure THC because at that time nothing else was available. Mm -hmm. But compared to cannabis extracts and cannabis flowers, I would say um, it's comparable, effective, but perhaps a little bit less tolerated mm -hmm. and with pure THC I would say but it's only my personal experience 
I would say people report about more side effects compared mm -hmm. to cannabis extracts and flowers. Right. So it sounds like a lot of it comes down to, as well as, you know, obviously your personal experience, but the personal uh, preference yeah, and experience yeah, of the patient. Yeah. And I have also some patients who like to combine mm -hmm. different substances. So, for example, a patient who uses an oral cannabis extract, And then, in addition to use when his ticks increased grammatically, he had a specific situation, then to use an inhaler um, to have a strong and immediate effect. And this is also a good idea to treat at least ticks. It sounds like it's very uh, individualized treatment. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right, I want to finish up uh, at the beginning um, and ask you, how did you get into working with cannabis? So I'm a neurologist and a psychiatrist, mm. and more than 25 years ago, I decided to become a specialist in Tourette's. And this is quite good um, when, you, when you are both a psychiatrist and a neurologist because it's a neuropsychiatric disorder. Sure. Um, patients suffering from Tourette's suffer from tics. This is a kind of a movement disorder. Mm -hmm. And 80 to 90% of our patients suffering from psychiatric comorbidities And this is something neurologists are not so familiar with. And um, when I started to care for these patients, I always asked my patients, what helps you, um, what brings your ticks up or down? This is um, something, something that is very typical for ticks, that ticks wax and wane over time. And a lot, of, a lot of patients reported that when they use cannabis, this is helpful And I, when I've heard it again and again, I decided to start with a survey. So we specifically asked our patients, have you ever used cannabis and what happened after using cannabis? And in parallel, we asked for effects when using alcohol and nicotine. Mm. And what we found was that um, the effects when using cannabis were much better compared to the effect the patient felt after use of alcohol and nicotine. And at that time, it's more than 20 years ago, um, it was not allowed in Germany to prescribe or to use cannabis in a clinical trial. And we imported Marinol from the US mm -hmm. and gave it to one single patient. He was a man who used cannabis before. We asked him to stop using cannabis, gave him pure THC and just looked what happened. And um, his, his ticks went down. He had no... Um, side effects and after we had seen this we decided to move forward with the single dose trial um, again we used pure THC and it was a crossover design we included 12 patients and we saw a positive effect and thereafter we decided for a double blind placebo control trial mm -hmm. um, it was a parallel group trial there we included 24 patients again we saw a positive effect And currently, we are performing a larger trial. It's, again, double-blind placebo-controlled. And the aim is to include 96 patients. Recruitment is going very well. So currently, about 80 patients are included. This is a study that is a multi-center study all over Germany. Mm -hmm. And we expect to complete recruitment in April or May this year. And hopefully in the end of this year, we will have the results of this study. Amazing. Really fascinating stuff. Thanks so much for speaking with me today. Thank you.
I'm Michael Schaefer Omerman. This episode was edited, mixed, and produced by myself, co-produced by Alana Goldberg and Matan Whale. This interview was recorded on the sidelines of the CanX conference in Lisbon in February 2020.